Thank you so much for tuning in to the Defending Christianity podcast. I'm your host, Levi Dade, and in this podcast, we aim to talk about the evidence and reasons for why the Christian faith is true and why it is good. We do this with the hope to encourage the church to engage the culture around us and to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus as 1 Peter 3.15 commands. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. Welcome back to the Defending Christianity podcast. I'm your host, Levi Dade. I'm really excited about today because I was in Jacksonville, Texas, uh, back in January at an apologetic conference, apologetics conference, the unapologetic conference is what it's called. And uh, I was in a breakout session and I just heard this really awesome lecture about how laws about um, women in the Old Testament actually can reveal God's justice uh, and how they they uphold the integrity of women. And it was just a really cool way of looking at these laws that I had not thought about before. And I, I just said to myself when I was sitting there, I have to have this on the show because it's really good. And I think that that my audience would enjoy it. And so uh, the person who gave that lecture was Dr. Katie McCoy. She serves as an assistant professor of theology and what in women's studies at the college at Southern not Southern, Southwestern Seminary. Dr. McCoy holds a PhD in systematic theology from Southwestern, and her dissertation is on Old Testament laws about women's personhood and what they teach us about women's dignity and social justice. She's also the the director of women's ministry for the Baptist General Convention of Texas. We're excited to have her on the show. Dr. McCoy, how are you? Doing great, Levi. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you again for being on. Uh, I guess to start, could you talk a little bit about your personal faith journey? What led you to pursue biblical studies specifically and and specific, specifically uh, scholarship concerning Old Testament laws about women? How did that all start? Yeah, so if we're talking faith journey, it started well. I had that um, probably the most ideal growing up situation of uh, this very solid Christian family. Um, when I was a junior in high school, I got very sober and serious about my own account with the Lord and, um, made a public profession of faith when I was 16 and was baptized, uh, then, and then from there, I, I kind of look back and I think it's, um, something where it has to be the Lord that led me to the next steps because I just sort of fell into it. It, it wasn't necessarily, um, I certainly had goals and I had plans, but, but it wasn't something that I had a trajectory or plan for. I was a music major in college and then it was called to ministry shortly after graduating and, um, moved down to Southwestern seminary and did my master of divinity rolled right into PhD work, which, um, if anybody is in that, that limbo period, I recommend you just go get as much education as you can when you can, because it's hard to jump back into it. And um, as I was preparing to do a dissertation, found that um, in all of my own studies, and then also some of the topics that I had had the chance to teach, um, there just wasn't a whole lot out there about this intersection of Old Testament laws and evangelical theology or, or general orthodoxy. Um, rabbis talked about those laws and feminists talked about those laws and they, they came from very different perspectives on them. And so I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. This is something that I've never heard before, um, until I did my own master's studies. 
and um, just kind of kept running in that direction and found that it was a great need. Um, as I sort of was diving into all these laws and I, I narrowed them because all the laws about women um, would be just too big for any dissertation, but I narrowed them specifically to laws that were um, non-reciprocal and non-parallel. So non-reciprocal, it's not like, uh, so for instance, the, the law in numbers um, five about the accused adulteress, which we'll talk about, talk about today. There's not like a reciprocal law if the husband is accused of adultery and there's no proof and then non-parallel. So for instance, there's no, there's no childbirth laws for men because there's no parallel. So uh, I was limiting it to those, those things. And, and essentially what it ended up being is Old Testament laws about how women's bodies were treated, how bodies and personhood was uh, respected, um, protected from being exploited. Um, and in some case, protecting from an additional exploitation of something that had already happened that should not have happened like in the case yeah. of actual soul loss. Mm-hmm. So it, um, it just captured my fascination. And like most times when you study the Pentateuch, and this might be an unexpected thing to find in the Pentateuch, but um, when you really encounter the God of the law, it's um, it really draws you to him because there's there's such beauty in consistency and in this genuine um, it, true righteousness that acts out in society, um, concern for the vulnerable, impartiality. And um, the more that I would study the law, the more I, I found myself just wanting to know the lawgiver even more. And mm. I'm not alone in that. Actually, there was a, a woman named Etta Linneman. I think it's Linneman or Linneman. Um, and she was a German theologian. She was the star student of Rudolf Boltmann. And if you're familiar with Boltmann, Boltmann was uh, the 20th century uh, German theologian who wanted to demythologize the Bible. So essentially take all the supernatural out of it. And it was the uh, Jefferson Bible. Uh, what's that? The Jefferson, the Jefferson Bible. Bible. Yeah. Yeah. I said, uh, and then kind of took, took that in and sort of gave an academic justification for it. So he um, mm-hmm. was part of the German higher criticism school and yeah. Um, yeah. sort of making the Bible something that you can wrap your mind around. Well, she was the star student of Rudolf Bultmann, and as she was studying Old Testament laws, she converted to Christ. Oh, wow. Studying this because she found um, with one particular law that she was studying, she goes, this God cares about the most marginalized in society. How much Mm. care about me? So it's Mm. a really fascinating study, and I'm glad that you are featuring it for your listeners. Uh, Well, we appreciate you and all your hard work again on it. So so what came first, your your interest in Old Testament laws or your, your, you notice this need uh, for, for this, for um, addressing this issue? I think it was the intersection of women's issues, culture, and theology. And, and when you look at that, it, it was something that um, I think I just saw a, a need, like they, they'll say a lot of great businesses are, you find a problem and you solve it. But uh, a lot of great dissertations are you find a conversation that nobody's having that they should be having, and you yeah. you write all of that out and, and mm. 
a research and you're sort of inserting yourself in that conversation. So it's something that still needs a lot of attention. Um, yeah. A few different researchers who've been picking it up. But, um, there's a That's good. general dearth of, of research out there from, from an evangelical Orthodox perspective. That's awesome. Um, I mentioned, yeah, I mentioned in the in- introduction that you're the director of women's ministry for Texas Baptist. Could you mm-hmm. just kind of elaborate on on what that looks like on a day to day basis for our listeners who might not be from Texas? <laughs> yeah, so we are a state convention and we serve over 5,300 churches in 12 different states, and we have an international reach through our different ministries. And I've been at this for less than a year, and we are creating um, opportunities and resources for women who are serving in their local church. The phrase women's ministry comes with a lot of baggage, um, no matter who you are or where you're from. Mm -hmm. But when you start talking about ministry to, for, and by women, um, all of a sudden you find that women are very interested in engaging in that because we are at very much a cultural moment post-COVID where women want to... um, be far more hands-on, deep in their in their study of the scriptures. They want more, but they're not exactly sure how to get that and where to go to find it and how to create it. And so mm-hmm. that's part of what we're beginning to do here at Texas Baptist for Women. That's awesome. And for any of, of our new listeners, back in season one, we have a two-part episode on how God uses women. With uh, The first part was Dr. Lynn Kovic, and the second part was Christian Padilla at Beeson. So uh, y'all should go back and listen to that if you're interested and have any questions about that as well, because that's an issue that definitely needs to be addressed in the church, too. So we're just going to go ahead and dive on in because this is a it can be a heavy topic. It can be a long conversation and we're going to mm. keep it to, to an hour as best as we can. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm sitting there in that breakout session and, and you start off with the these perceptions about about the law and about this issue. So where do we start? Like, what's the where what's the context, I guess, that people need when they go into this conversation? So when we're talking about Old Testament law, we have to recognize that we are um, sort of being transported to a different culture and a different set of cultural values. One of the biggest ways we see this is the difference between Western individualism and collectivism. So the Bible is a culture, the culture in which the Bible was written is a collectivist culture. And in a collectivist culture, your highest aim, your greatest good is to fulfill your responsibilities to your relationships and to the community. Um, It would be a mark of honor for someone to sacrifice what he wanted to do for the sake of the greater good or the community. You contrast that with individualism, where the greatest good or your, your, um, your highest goal is to fulfill your sense of, um, your, your own your own ambitions. It is a self-actualizing culture where, um, for instance, perfect example, if you had a friend who, um, let's say her parents owned a, a small business and their dream was for her to take over this business and provide some security for them in their old age, but she wanted to go be a Broadway actress. Depending on your culture, Um, if depending on your culture, you would prescribe to her what the right thing to do is. So in a Western culture, we would say, go live your dreams, go chase down 
the great white way, go be a Broadway actress and win a Tony and all that. But to a collectivist culture, they would look at that and say that is the height of selfishness. And that is uh, something that would bring shame to your family. The honorable thing to do would be to fulfill what your family needs. So our own individualism is often something that we read into the Bible. And by the way, if you grew up watching Disney movies at all, you've got this. You you have been uh, sort of imprinted with the value of individualism. Um, Magnify that by the fact that if you are an American, we are individualism on steroids, not just Western individuals, but American Western individualism. And for us, breaking tradition, charting our own course, it is um, the height of what it means to be free. And so that's not all bad. That's not uh, like any culture. You can take the, the good and the bad. You can, you can apply it in right or wrong ways. But it's something that we have to be mindful of in our own study of the Bible, that we are coming to interpret a set of laws that are written in a very particular context. And if we bring our individualism to those laws, we are going to impose a moral category onto them that is unfair. It's not actually how these laws um, would have functioned in a collectivist culture. So I think that's the, the biggest thing to keep in mind is that this is a dramatically different context than our mm-hmm. own, often in ways that we don't even realize and we can end up reading into the Bible something that yeah. is there. Yeah, it's it's important to leave behind as best as we can our own pre-understanding of the text, what we think it it means before we even read it, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so that's a pretty big principle in hermeneutics in general. Uh, but what does the law tell us or, or doesn't tell us about the lawgiver? You touched on that during that yes, uh, lecture. Exactly. So when we encounter the law, we are encountering um, the, the value system of God. So uh, if I were queen um, and in my kingdom, I said that every Friday we all had to eat sushi and chocolate cake, you would know that I really value sushi and chocolate cake. Um, and so that's a silly example, but when we're seeing these different laws, we are, um, encountering God's own moral system at work. We are seeing what he values. And in any society, we see what a, uh, a culture values by what they praise and what they prohibit, um, what they would approve and what they punish. That's part of why, um, when we fight for, just laws related to abortion, for example, that we're saying we want these laws to reflect the value system of what is right, not not approving what is wrong. And uh, we are wanting those laws, just like laws that would punish murder or theft, to reflect genuine righteousness. So that's not imposing a moral, um, uh, imposing, excuse me, a religious system we're talking about general morality that we would want our laws to reflect. And so when we're encountering the Old Testament law, we are encountering um, really the heart and the value system of the lawgiver. Mm. Yes, that's a really good way to put it. So I'm sure our audience is ready to get into some of these laws and and hear what what there is to say about them. Let's start with uh, Leviticus 15. Well, we're talking about periods, so we're going right into it. 
Um, this is this is one of those eyebrow blushers, yeah. and um, it's a bit of a of a blusher sometimes, depending on depending on the audience. So yeah. this particular uh, set of laws, when we're talking about the purity laws, we have to keep something in mind. And again, this is our cultural difference that clean versus unclean doesn't necessarily mean right versus wrong. So when you're encountering something in the law that is unclean, it can mean that simply that a person is not able to approach what is holy. And this is talking about um, the stipulations on worship of how people are to approach the Lord. And so unclean doesn't mean um, guilty, doesn't mean that someone has committed a moral wrong. It simply means that they are ceremonially unable to approach what is holy, being in the presence of God. And uh, generally speaking, what could make you unclean? It was some type of bodily function. It was some type of illness. If you um, came into contact with um, a corpse or a dead animal, all of those things would make you ceremonially unclean. Mm-hmm. And, and the big takeaway is that um, we can't just approach God how we want to. And the people of Israel couldn't. And we can't as well. We approach God on his on his terms always. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think for Israel's context and situation specifically, it's, it's even more so because you have the, the general principle that clean or unclean doesn't mean necessarily good or bad. But then you add on top of that, that God is trying to set them apart and purge the, the evil that they had learned from Egypt from them to make them his holy nation. And so he kind of had to go double up on it. And I guess you can say go the extra mile with them to make sure they understood that, you know, they, that this cleanness, they're trying to be set apart as a nation, that they are his elected people. All of God's laws are also to teach his children how they are to be separate and that word holy. Uh, we often think of it as meaning righteous. It means. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. this is when we're encountering some of these laws, we're seeing um, how God's people were to act differently from the cultures around them. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. So um, all throughout scripture, any type of reproductive discharge made someone ceremonially unclean. Um, what the, the passage in Leviticus 15 is describing is normal and then abnormal reproductive discharge in a woman. So for um, normal reproductive discharge, so a woman's period, it's a, a, a woman's flow of blood made her ceremonially unclean. It's the same thing that we're going to see in the childbirth law as well. What this meant um, when you, when you really practically consider it, it's that she, um, she would make ceremonially unclean anyone who had contact with her. Um, And that again, doesn't mean that that person did anything wrong. It just meant that they were ceremonially unclean for a day and then they would have to wash and then they would be restored to a state of cleanness. It meant that during that time of uncleanness, they could not go into the temple. Um, And it also, some theories um, suggest that the, anything that the woman touched was also ceremonially unclean as well which would mean like household items or uh, food preparation. So some rabbis believed that this meant that the woman would not do any type of um, housework or food preparation 
during um, her time of the month. And so what I usually tell the ladies um, at this point is uh, this was a law that required you to take some space. You didn't have to isolate yourself if you didn't want to, but you could stay home. And it alleviated you from a lot of household tasks. And at which point most women are like, yeah, sign me up for that. By the way, there are actually some modern companies who have started um, menstruation days for women because it's it's kind of a sick day, but it's more like a, maybe they need to work from home and just having some understanding for women on that. And there are some companies that in the name of um, sort of a progressive way of thinking have been have been adopting this mindset and ironic. Then practically this was a time of rest. It was a time um, where they, they uh, were prohibited from going to the temple, but keep in mind going to the temple, not like just hopping in your car and going to church. This uh, would have, could have been like an arduous amount of travel. Um, She would have had to pack things up for the day. She would be taking care of her children and she was alleviated from all of that. This is also, though, different from other cultures. Other cultures um, believe that a woman on her period was repugnant. And they even blamed uh, coming into contact with a menstruating woman with things like crop failures and military defeat. And we don't see that in scripture. We don't see that she's done anything wrong, that there's anything that is um, inherently uh, repulsive. It just means she is in a state of ceremonial uncleanness and she's not able to go to the temple. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, that this also did was it helped with public hygiene at a time when there was not the, not only the amenities that we had today, but there was not the antibiotics that we had today. So it was um, very helpful for women um, to not spread um, actual bacterial uncleanness and this would have helped uh the entire the entire camp yeah so they were they were basically given a monthly vacation <laughs> sort not of too far i to mean say you that. know it's not like she's at the beach or anything <laughs> no, no, she no. had a time yeah she had a time of, of course ability to rest it was it was essentially understood that she was um not going to be expected to do all of the typical things that she would have done otherwise and in Leviticus 12, we, we see something kind of similar with the purification after childbirth, right? We see the Lord commanding that um, if she gives birth to a male, then she'll be unclean for seven days as she is during the days of her menstrual impurity. I don't know why it's so hard for me to pronounce. It always it is for a lot of people. It's okay. You're not alone. Uh, the flesh of his foreskin must be circumcised on the eighth day. And then verse five says, but if she gives birth to a female, she will be unclean for two weeks as she is during her menstrual impurity. She will continue in purification from her bleeding for 66 days. So it doubles the time that, that it would be for a male. Yes. This is something that many theories um, out there say, see, the Bible is punishing the woman for having a girl by having a time of purification. Let's look at what this actually entailed, though. So um, starting with uh, the woman who's had a baby boy. If the woman had a baby boy, she has seven days of uncleanness. And then on the eighth day, 
it is, um, it's as though that uncleanness is lifted, which means she is able to accompany her family for her son's circumcision. Not only a time that's very uh, important in the life of the family, but also a time when, of course, this infant is going to need his mother. It would be absolutely mm-hmm. traumatizing for the entire family to have to go through that without the mother being there. So after that, after that eighth day, she resumes her time of purification for another 33 days. Now there's some theories that say she's like really unclean for a week. And then she's just sort of unclean for 33 days. The reason that that um, doesn't hold up is um, for a couple of reasons. First, you don't see in anywhere else in the Bible sort of gradations of ceremonial impurity. You either are mm-hmm. or aren't clean. You're either clean or unclean. Um, the other thing is uh, every time that that Hebrew word is used of uh, a time of purification, there are like four other places in Leviticus where that's used. And it is all referring to um, the pure time of purification for someone with leprosy. So the only way you could say that there's like a level of uncleanness for a woman um, in that other 33 days is if you would say there's a level of uncleanness in the purification of a leper. Well, we know that that's not true. So we can't infer that therefore the woman was like really unclean for seven days. And then after the eighth day, only sort of minorly unclean for 33 days. Rather, I think we see is that for seven days, she's on essentially maternity leave. For the eighth day, it's lifted so she can be with her son during his circumcision. And then she returns to that maternity leave for 33 days for a total of 40 days. Fascinating little tidbit. Modern obstetrics and gynecology states that a woman's um, reproductive system takes about six weeks to return to normal after having a baby, about 42 days. And there's your 40 days. Yeah, same amount of time. It's incredible. Now, <laughs> why the double time of purification? So here's the here's the, the real short answer. Short answer is we don't know. It's a it's anything that we do is an argument from silence. We don't have a clear answer as to why it was a double time of purification. Some people say it's because she was being punished for having a girl. We know that that's not true because then the law would be contradicting itself, and um, it would uh, be lowering the value of a, of a girl. Um, and that goes against Genesis one and two. We know that that's not true. Some say, um, that she would be sort of, the mother was almost serving a time of purification on behalf of her daughter. The reason that's not true in my view is first, the only people who could represent another Israelite in, um, some type of purification ceremony were the priests And second, every other time you see someone who is unclean, whether ceremonially or morally, it's because of something that happened, not something that might happen in the future. I I don't think that argument holds up either. There was, however, a, um, a, a professor of pharmacology at Johns Hopkins University who did a study on this, and he uh, studied Mothers who had given birth to a baby girl six weeks ago and mothers who had given birth to a baby boy six weeks ago. And he found that um, 
among those who had given birth to a baby girl, their bodies were still sort of regulating and coming back to normal that they, um, the, the discharge that these women were, their bodies were sort of flushing out was still at a higher level of toxins than those who had had a baby boy. Uh, depending on who you talk to, you might hear that's because um, women, when they're pregnant with a girl, they have um, almost like double the hormones because they have her hormonal structure and the baby girl's hormonal structure, and that can create more um, cellular waste. Um, so, so there's some things in biology that I think we're still catching up to mm-hmm. is probably the most fascinating explanation for it. But again, they're all arguments from silence. We don't really know, but what we can mm-hmm. is it was not some type of punitive measure. It wasn't punishment. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that we can also know that this was, I guess, how should I put this God's way of looking out for the mother? I believe so, so. to speak. I believe so, because it was a time of rest. And, and when you mm-hmm. look at this from the angle of the mother, um, it was either six weeks of rest or another 10 to 11 weeks of rest. And so it was just more time to recover. And, and also you think about how this would have played out in a community where um, your neighbors, your extended family would know that if, if you had a baby that it was assumed you were on six to 11 weeks of uh, moving at a much slower pace of needing some help around the house of needing some help with meal preparation. Keep in mind agrarian society where uh, meal preparation took up a significant part of the day. And so this would have been something sort of ingrained in the community of coming alongside another woman to help. And uh, it was a little bit like, um, uh, religiously imposed maternity leave. Hmm. Yeah, and again, it's it's a corporate society in general, anyway. So, so that would be expected in that context. Thank you so much for joining us today on Finding Christianity podcast. I hope and pray that you were encouraged and strengthened in your faith. And if you're someone who's seeking truth, I hope and pray that you have gotten closer to that because Jesus is the truth. Join us next time on the Defending Christianity podcast. God bless.